0: Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Good morning, patrons. This is Will Fenton, the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm here with Dr. Carla J. Mulford. Professor of English at Penn State University and the founding president of the Society of Early Americanists, which recently hosted its 11th biennial conference. Carla has published widely in the field of early American studies, but Franklin has been a preoccupation for over 25 years. In fact, she has published over 20 articles and book chapters on Franklin in addition to the Cambridge Companion to Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin Franklin and the Ends of Empire, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Last night, Carla led a special seminar entitled Benjamin Franklin and Immigration, which considered how Franklin's ideas about immigrants and immigration evolved as his career moved from being a colonial leader in Philadelphia to a citizen of the world. Welcome to the library, Carla.
1: Thanks, Will. I'm happy to be here.
0: So, what are we looking at?
1: Well, we're looking at um, probably the third iteration of uh, Franklin and Timothy Folger's map of the Gulf Stream. It's really quite fascinating, and it's actually the copy that he brought back. It's a it's an engraving of the copy he brought back to the American Philosophical Society after he'd been a minister plenipotentiary in France. This is the third iteration, and this um, information comes from Ellen Cohn, Uh, in an essay that she published in the year 2000. Um, This is the third iteration. We know of the original um, map of the Gulf Stream because Franklin worked with his relative, Timothy Folder to create one. That one emerged at a different time entirely. Um, That one emerged uh, when Franklin was trying to figure out possible shipping routes, especially for correspondence um, to the British Empire. And um, Timothy Folger came to visit him when he was in France, and Folger at that time um, probably conveyed to him. They were having difficulty getting secret correspondence passed, and so Folger helped him, and uh, Franklin worked with a, a um, mapmaker, George louis Le Rouge, in France, um, probably the only one who worked with him, um, and created a, a similar map for, um, for France. Um, and then when he returned, he decided he wanted to present this, uh, from his uh, diplomatic mission, he decided he wanted to present this to the American Philosophical Society. The thing that's fascinating about it is that each of these iterations has um, features uh, different points of interest. So the map we're looking at, um, it features the, um, the Gulf Stream that, that traverses the area of, uh, southeastern, the currently now the United States, Florida, um, all the way up to Newfoundland and then over. And this, uh, this actually circulates over to Britain and the, um, a series of islands and then down to the coast of Africa. The, what they've managed to do on this particular map is um, place an inset that has the entire circulation mm. available to um, to navigators uh, Inset in the upper left-hand corner. They needed the map. Um, they needed to uh, ch- have a chart of the Gulf Stream so that they would know where they were at particular coordinates. And so if you look at this um, map before us, you can actually see the coordinates that they would use so that they could essentially understand when they were likely to hit the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream assists traffic, of course, going across the Atlantic over to the European area, but it uh, gets in the way coming back. I want to say that Franklin is often credited with having established the uh, charting of the Gulf Stream, and uh, probably we need to focus on that word charting. Franklin learned of the Gulf Stream by watching what was going on as he returned to um, America in the 1760s. They passed an area of what he calls muddy water and it's a, the water actually changes changed color by his observation, and he thought they were nearing shore as a result of the um, the change in the water uh, color um, and then he learned from talking to the ship captain that no they had to go a little bit more, and um, so they did and he learned then that the whaler people involved in the whaling um, you know uh what's it called the the trait the whaling trade, mm-hmm. um, they they knew of the Gulf Stream, so this is something that's kind of ancestrally mm-hmm. known to people who are seafarers, but for people who are tradespeople, people trying to um, find secure navigation of the seas to transport um, mail and, um, alas, people uh, from Africa, uh, didn't have any sense of when they were going to be crossing um, the uh the problem waters, and so the Gulf Stream is a is established by the different temperature in the ocean, and so the um, the temperature actually makes it easier for ships to navigate. Um, the problem is that coming back, um, you can get held up as as many as five weeks, and so um, there's a record of Thomas Gage actually complaining to um, uh, British ministers that uh, the uh, transport of his military equipment and people. Was being interrupted, and he wanted it to wanted uh, to have better navigation. So um, that's actually why this um, the original version occurred. Franklin talked with Timothy Folger about it, and um, they pulled out just this just a scan um, of an existing map, and that has not been identified. That existing map hasn't been identified, but. Um, Folger uh, essentially just drew onto that existing map hmm. where he thought, um, in terms of his own uh, navigational memory, where he thought the um, Gulf Stream was. Hmm. So it was really a um, it was a composite of Folger's experience and Franklin's scientific know-how. Hmm. Um, and so Franklin uh, was able to map the quadrants that uh, navigationally would be used. And so in earlier versions of, ma- of this map, and I'm not sure it's on this one. Um, yes, yeah, so, so um, for instance, if you, if you look at the Gulf Stream itself, um, you can see he's actually uh, giving the navigational points as to where they're likely to be, how far up they're going to go and when they're going to come back down. And all of that um, had to do essentially from Franklin's perspective, with transport for Britain initially. Mm -hmm. So um, the Folger Franklin map was originally published sometime, um, Ellen Cohn suggests, in February 1769. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, you know, when Franklin was in France, um, they had a terrible time trying to figure out the coastline of the United States, and they were used to relying on British materials but they didn't have access to those same kinds of British materials that they were used to because they were in France and fighting against Britain. And so um, the second iteration occurred because uh, Franklin wanted to provide the same kind of map um, to uh, Americans, but especially to the French, because he was at the time trying to figure out a way to have secret mail be uh, sent over to Congress. Hmm. As it was, um, Congress would often uh, write their uh, dispatches in triplicate and quadruplicate. Hmm. So um, Franklin wanted a more reliable service. He was staying at uh, Jacques uh, Don, Donatien um, de Chaumont uh, in, in Passy, and he actually um, convinced uh, Chaumont to fund the creating of a line of ships, the identifying of a line of ships that would... Um, convey secret correspondence. Hmm. Um, they were captured by British frigates, and so um, you know the the one effort they tried to do that um, it was captured and the mail thrown overboard. Hmm. So some of the congressional dispatches were were thrown into the sea. But so um, Franklin, so Timothy Folger came to visit Franklin, and um, Folger made a um, a new map for him, hmm. and he got it engraved there in France, hmm. and it was published in France.
0: Yeah, and as I'm looking at this object, because we are looking at an actual object, um, one thing that I think is is remarkable about it is, first of all, I would have never been able to find it without the help of Jim Green, uh, because it's sort of an inauspicious, hardbound volume of APS transactions. Then you open it up, and towards the back of the book, you get to this one uh, uh, section that sort of unfolds in three panels. So this, this map sort of spills out of the volume, and you could see the the sort of ghostly impression of the ink on the other printed pages. Um, I hope that we'll be able to digitize this this particular volume for our for our listeners, so that they could see how um, there's almost like this this strange duplication mm-hmm. of the, um, it's the echoes. Yeah, exactly. Echoes of this Gulf Stream, um, and that 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 inlay that you mentioned, where you had that sort of. Um, aerial view of the Atlantic I think is really interesting because you see this sort of oblong circle uh, that maps out the Gulf Stream, and it really gives you a sense of uh, the circularity of mm-hmm. um, of the movement of both letters and people, mm-hmm. uh, which I think really was, was, was central to your seminar last night. Mm-hmm. So with that, I'd like to talk a little bit about that seminar. Um, You led a a sort of special one-night seminar at the library company that was entitled Benjamin Franklin and Immigration. Now, while the figure of Benjamin Franklin is no stranger to the library company, or the APS for that matter, um, the format was something of a departure for us. We gave you one night, three hours, in fact, a little bit less, uh, to introduce participants to Franklin's uh, shifting views on immigration, demographics, economics, and the environment. There's at least one book in there, probably many more. Um, What did you want participants to take away from that course?
1: Franklin, consistently across his life, but was, um, of course, for different empires, he was an imperial thinker. Mm -hmm. He was interested in demographics. He was interested in... The extent to which the productivity of an empire, if it worked collaboratively with its people, um, could be increased by that collaboration. Part of the collaboration has to do with the takeover of native lands by treaty um, and the uh, introduction of productive laborers. Mm. So Franklin was uh, interested in having immigrants who were concerned about laboring and laboring for themselves. His idea was that independent laborers owning their own labor actually made a greater comp- uh, contribution to the commonwealth than um, one could make in any other uh, form. Mm-hmm. So um, what we tried to show last night, we had several different tables, With uh, thanks to the staff at the library company who identified materials that might be appropriate, and thanks to you as well for um, figuring out what would be appropriate. Um, and so we had a number of maps, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and maps are key to empire building, but they're also key to understanding the movement of peoples and goods across the land base. Um, one of the things that Franklin continued to try to explain to British ministers what the, was that the terrain in North America, but especially in Pennsylvania, was significantly different from the terrain mm-hmm. in England. And so um, the forests were... Um, beautiful but a problem if you're talking about having independent laborers um, engaged in agriculture. And so um, the maps helped us identify uh, places that were already settled um, and identify spaces where new settlers would be able to go. We also looked at some materials related to Franklin's diplomacy in France um, because Franklin was concerned that people from Europe, especially from the aristocratic classes who did who actually did not like the um, uprisings of um, the so-called lower orders, um, uh, he actually did not like their applications for uh, um, citizenship in the United States because he thought them inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So um, what we were able to uncover last night was the extent to which labor and people, in his view, would be the, um, the best support for the British Empire. He, his ideas about certain groups of immigrants changed across time, we looked, um, we sort of stretched the the uh, the label immigration to include Native Americans, and mm-hmm. so we looked at his views about Native Americans. Um, we considered his views about the Germans in Pennsylvania. And we talked as well about, um, as, and maybe especially about, his changing views of um, uh, the situation for people of African descent and how initially his views were devised around economic goals about the production um, of the land. And so uh, was he was not uh, critical of the slave trade. Um, he was only interested in supporting it if it would support the, em- the, the productivity of the empire. But by the end of his life, and we talked about that um, transformation, that arc of transformation, by the end of his life, he was much more concerned um, along humanitarian lines like those he first met uh, in England, through the associates of Doctor Bray, hmm. but then um, uh, talked more deeply phil- and philosophically about with his friends in France.
0: Yeah, if, if memory serves, one observation that I thought was particularly insightful from one of the participants was that his views seemed to change dramatically during his time in Passy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yes, they did. Yeah, the participants. So, so what was delightful to me um, when I'm a professor in my classes. Um, I'm the sole authority, and I could say anything, I imagine, and it would be believed, and that's the unfortunate part. In this setting, at the library company, because um, this is, after all, Franklin's library, um, uh, I was uh, really just delighted to see the number of people who already knew the material, um, who'd done the reading for the seminar, um, and had their own contributions to make. So it was um, really helpful to have... um, uh, Charles there for instance, who knows how to read maps and um, mm-hmm. has studied them and could talk about them as uh, knowledgeable about the the Paxtons um, as you are and so the the uh, area of the, the situation of the Germans in Pennsylvania um, well covered by people who were in the seminar, which was delightful John van Horn um, mm-hmm. there as well and uh, I could refer to John's work with the associates of Dr. Bray we mm-hmm. had some, I think penetrating conversations about the uh, the situation of Africans in America and um, the sort of multi- the range of historical inquiry that has been made around um, those key topics.
0: Yeah, so certainly you had help, arguably too much help selecting materials, because both Jim oh, and I wonderful. took an interest in yes, this. Oh, was wonderful. Yes, this was
1: wonderful. So, so could I just say? Yeah, of course. So, um, so uh, Jim's uh, major contribution from my perspective um, has to do with the um, account book of Mary Coates, and the Coates family um, uh, were merchandisers, and so the Coates have records of uh, purchases made. and So it was interesting to see that in the Franklin household when Franklin was abroad, this was in Britain, when he was in Britain, um, uh, there was uh, someone named Jemima, um, probably enslaved, or perhaps a a free laborer, but probably enslaved, um, working in the household. And Hmm. so um, we uh, have a sign that Deborah and Sally were relying upon uh, Laboring assistance inside the household um, by people of African descent, and that's really um, that's something new that is a, um, something special here at the library company, um, that the collection off, you know can always offer a scholar mm-hmm. new information. Um, and Jim's uh, attention to that archive, I, I didn't know that that existed. I don't know that any scholars know that that exists.:
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's, it's just a, a fabulous material object, too. Yes, I think it, it took it's beautiful. two book cradles for us to put it out just because of its sheer size. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're listening and you're interested in this account book, come and get in touch with either myself or Jim, and we'll give you an opportunity to take a closer look. But circling back, um, so you had some help selecting materials, but one challenge that I always face because you have such a wealth of different types of experience in these seminars is how do you um, choose your context? You know, like, uh, did did that take some some work on your part in terms of thinking about how you would contextualize each of the tables, if not objects?
1: Well, Mike, so, so my context was my own work. Mm-hmm. I tend to read Franklin along um, lines associated with economic thinking. I'm interested in um, the ways in which he tried to support the empire with his... Um, Sort of maybe the science of economics we could we could say, so my book uh, is um, about the extent to which franklin 's economic thinking probably has been neglected you know we 've had a wave of interest in social history, mm-hmm. and that certainly um, came to the fore in our um, in our materials last night, um, but uh, also in our in our examination of those materials, we were able to look at the extent to which what we know about social history and franklin 's uh, situation with in, with regard to immigration and Native people and people of African descent. Um, his situation was driven, as in my interpretation, his situation was driven by his uh, views of the economy. And so um, what undergirded uh, my review of each of those tables um, was my understanding of Franklin's interest in the economic circumstances and supporting the economic cir- circumstances of the British Empire.
0: Mm-hmm. So you have... Um honestly, uh, a humbling degree of expertise when it comes to Franklin's economic and diplomatic um, history. I'm curious to know if working on this seminar brought anything to light, changed the way that you thought about Franklin's immigration politics in particular.
1: Well, um, so there's one uh, one text we looked at last night, and that is his letter to the Federal Gazette um, in 1790. Hmm. And um, in preparation for the seminar, I decided I was really interested. And that's actually um, to go back to this, um, the inset in this Gulf Stream map. So I'm going to try to talk about two things here. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing I really admire about the inset is that, um, you know, Franklin was interested in having articulated the so-called Barbary Coast. And this is uh, an area that we now call Tunisia and Algeria, uh, Morocco, and Libya. And um, it's interesting that he wanted the – he evidently uh, asked for this engraving of the inset because the inset reminds us that in um, seventeen what eighty four I think, when he presented it to the American Philosophical Society, mm-hmm. um, there was piracy taking place off the coasts of Africa. And that piracy involved the taking of, um, of European sailors of Christian descent mm-hmm. and their enslavement In uh, Tunisia and Algeria and these other locales um, among Muslims. And so um, Franklin's text of the Federal, his letter to the Federal Gazette, which is um, an appeal um, that is actually abolitionist in orientation, um, also addresses the problem of piracy on the Barbary coast. And Mm -hmm. so in preparing for the seminar, I realized that. Um, I didn't really know enough about that, and so I discovered in my preparation and talked last night about my discovery that Samuel Martin, whom he identifies in that letter to the Federal Gazette, um, actually was a British consul in the 17th century. So um, the opportunity that these seminars provide or learning experiences not just for people who, in my view, uh, not just for people who are coming to have a conversation about whatever topic. But it's actually, um, they get to witness moments of discovery for scholars as they um, begin to um, sort of articulate their new views. So in my book, Benjamin Franklin and the Ends of Empire... I actually talk about Samuel Martin as if Franklin had made him up. Mm. but Franklin hadn't made him up. I really? hadn't, hadn't done enough reading mm. in the um, letters by consuls. Uh, mm. And uh, these are only in manuscript. The consular paper is only in manuscript. The Martins are only in manuscript. So I, I needed to do a little more research there. So there's always something new to learn, you know, mm-hmm. if you start investigating carefully enough. Um, and I should have done that. I should have looked more carefully at what he'd done. So it was a learning experience for me.
0: Mm. Are there any um, comments or questions from the seminar that you're still thinking about?
1: I wish I knew more about the Paxton uprising. Um, and I know that that's an area that you know well. And I think Charles, uh, in the seminar, Charles um, knows it pretty well, too. Yeah. Um, and so I actually would have enjoyed hearing you two talk about uh, a little bit more about the Paxtons. We talked about uh, franklin's writing of the pa- of the uh, narrative of the late massacres yeah. and the extent to which he does create a humanitarian um, response to it um, and there was a remark from the audience that you know um, it you know as uh, suggesting that, that the sympathies of the reader had been evoked and he couldn't understand the incivilities mm-hmm. um, of the sort of murderousness of the paxtons but um, we didn't have enough time to delve more deeply into the Um, the predicament that settlers uh, faced um, there in Indian country. Um, We talked about it. I talked about it a little bit, and we had some uh, further questions. But um, it seems to me that the situation of the Paxtons, especially the ethnic situation of of the group of people living in the Pennsylvania border area, um, Scots and Scots-Irish, we could have explored that more, and I wish I knew more about that. So, perhaps that's something you could comment on. <laughs>
0: okay. Now, um, one one thing that I found particularly rewarding about that conversation, even if, even if it was abbreviated, was um, thinking about um, the, the evocation of hospitality rights in a narrative of the late massacre, which is, of course, Franklin's uh, publication at the very beginning of the Pamphlet War, the Paxton Pamphlet War of 1764. And I had always read that um, on its own as being, um, sort of a, a double-edged evocation because on one hand he's arguing uh, for these Conestoga who had these historically peaceable relations to their uh, surrounding settlers and um, the fact that they were entitled as guests to um, some degree of protection. But you know, the other side of that is that they're guests which means that they could be displaced at any time. They have no rightful claim to the space. It's a, It's an act of charity that they're allowed to stay. But then reading that evocation of hospitality rights against his evocation of hospitality rights in um, Remarks Concerning the Savages of North America, which is another document that you pulled, and I hadn't looked at in some time, there's an extended section there about the hospitality rights that different indigenous groups um, uh, provide to uh, settlers that happen to come into their tribes and how um, how incredibly generous and perhaps outsized in generosity those hospitality rights are. And so that made me think that there's a sort of bi-directionality here where um, hospitality rights are sort of reciprocal mm-hmm. between both uh, indigenous peoples and these new settlers and that uh, both 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 actors can serve as um, guests at different times.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um So uh, traditional among most Native populations is the extent to which um, they tend to welcome, and this goes across the area that we now call the United States, Um, Native people, um, when they talk about moments of contact, if they've been kept in the oral memory, of um, oral tribal memory, um, they will talk about how the tendency first always is to um, treat your host t- treat the be a good host mm-hmm. treat the people who are visiting well um, this is memorialized whether we look at native peoples um, from New England or from the southern United States or Pennsylvania the Lenapees were um, extremely gracious um, mm-hmm. in, when they worked with William Penn mm-hmm. and um, and we have that in the records what scared Uh, people when they went out to do treaties native people because of these this uh, experience of hospitality the idea is that you um sit and you treat and don't treat politically but you treat as as host and guest you have food um you take um you dine together Mm -hmm. um and you generally meet together in a kind of comradeship and that is how you um well the Powhatans called it um Brighten the chain. The, mm-hmm. the uh, Six Nations likewise use the chain metaphor, and so you have a sense that, um, from the native perspective, they were doing their part by engaging in this hospitality, um, and so they expected the people they were treating with likewise to um, to treat them as as um, s- treat them similarly well. This goes to what I argue in my book is Franklin's idea about sovereignty. He argues contrary to. Um, some of the theory of empire that was then reigning during the 18th century. He takes on um, the ideas of many of the people negotiating in Pennsylvania, including William Penn, that um, if we really want to uh, be fair to Native people and be hospitable to them, we don't want to take over their land as if their land was vacant. Um, Their land is occupied, and Mm -hmm. so we want to assume that they have sovereign ownership of their land and um, so native people we I talked briefly last night about the proclamation of seventeen sixty three Native people um, assume that the land is theirs. it was gifted to us by treaty mm-hmm. um, but but um, the settlers quickly forgot the extent to which the the land really was still native native people 's land so so going back to the Paxtons, um, I wish I knew more about the scots Irish population and their attitudes about Philadelphians. Um, sort of uh, ruling in Franklin's writings he goes back again and again to um, the idea of right government and you Mm -hmm. support government you behave well toward others you be a good citizen Um, and so part of the injustice that he writes about in his narrative of the late massacres is the extent to which these people weren't being good citizens because they were being inhospitable of course they they killed native people who were already in a workhouse they had already been located in a workhouse Um, So I'm just wondering, um, actually, if you or, you know, would it be nice if um, Charles had talked a little bit about the ethnic tensions? Are you willing to talk a little about
0: that? (laughs) Yes, but only briefly because this is your show. Um, So uh, I think one thing that we alluded to in this seminar and that we certainly wouldn't have time to cover, given that we already had a, a very tall order ahead of us, was that you cannot read the paxton incident in a vacuum it's not like this just happened out of nowhere there were years of uh, frontier warfare with the seven years war the previous summer you had pontiac's rebellion a number of scholars have, have have written very convincingly about those sort of continuities that really extend from the 1750s all the way through the 17 uh 1760s with the paxton incident and certainly Um, uh, the animosity towards the Quakers in government, um, uh, the the animosity that Scott Irish Presbyterians who were out in the backcountry felt towards these Philadelphia Quakers cannot be, uh, I think, fully understood without a a longer understanding of sort of um, the uh, strained diplomatic efforts of organizations like the Friendly Association Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. leading figures like Pemberton. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that that's one of the, the sort of marvels of these seminars is that we sort of touch upon all of these much mm-hmm. larger incidents and themes and often introduce participants to a range of um, historical incidents that they might not even know about mm-hmm. and then it becomes a sort of entry point to continuing that conversation mm-hmm. which i know i often find i'm doing with um charles charles keats is who we've referred to now um after every seminar i wind up in a email of a correspondence with him about a number of the subject matter and, and that's true of other participants and and that's what i think makes these, um, these seminars sort of an interesting experience because they're so darn small. Mm-hmm. You're talking mm-hmm. about 12 to 15 participants, mm-hmm. so we can really have that intimate, ongoing conversation mm-hmm. that emerges that, that, that doesn't end at the night of mm-hmm. uh, your performance, mm-hmm. but, but rather extends on, mm-hmm. and, on and forward. Mm-hmm. So that actually leads me to, to, to a question that I'm always interested in because I'm not, I'm not teaching right now. How is teaching this seminar different from teaching say uh, a graduate seminar at penn state
1: oh it's very different Um, so i walked into a room where people already knew what i was talking about Mm. Um, in the graduate class one has a range of um, abilities and prior knowledge people who come out for a seminar on franklin i find this when i just go give talks on franklin they already know things sometimes what they know isn't something i would agree with um, or might even just be wrong, um, but at least they, you know, they um, its their interest. In the graduate seminars, we have students who are studying literature, and—and um, and that's. Um, that's my special you know field area mm-hmm. but when I talk about Franklin I tend to talk as a historian mm. and so um, there's a significant difference the kinds of things that I teach in the classroom have to do with book history print history mm-hmm. um, what readers what rhetorical moves writers are making that readers would have been interested whereas here I get a chance to explore the range my range of interests in um in just an understanding of history and culture.
0: (laughs) I'm also a literary scholar that's playing a historian, unconvincingly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'd like to end with just a a sort of um, an opportunity to look ahead, because I know you're working on a new book. It's provisionally entitled, and I love this title, Benjamin Franklin's Electrical Diplomacy. I certainly hope that your publisher lets you keep that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So what is electrical diplomacy? And what do you hope to bring to the study of Franklin and statecraft?
1: So um, what I've noticed in studying Franklin, and this was a line of argument I actually tried to weave into my, um, my first book, um, but it was interfering with what I wanted to say about economics. And so um, I decided I really needed to make a different book on this theme. Um, we have had historians of science, I. Bernard Cohen, um, Joyce Chaplin, and, and uh, a few others, who have talked about Franklin as a scientist quite knowledgeably. Um, There are people like me out there, and I'm one of probably 20 people who have talked about Franklin's political life. No one has really studied the extent to which he sent, he strategically sent manuscripts and um, experiments into press at strategic moments in his diplomacy. Hmm. And so I'm mapping um, those moments of, uh, really sort of political crisis and looking at what he was doing as a scientist to see the extent to which um, those two areas of his interest fed each other. Um, and so it's, a, and it's so the other side of that is we can talk about what Franklin intended. Whatever he did in England, it didn't work. He um, couldn't forestall uh, war. Um, but uh, we also then need to consider the reception of that material. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, when he was being rejected in England, I mean, they didn't even want pointed lightning rods. They wanted rounded lightning rods in England. Um, France got it, and so um, he went with Sir John Pringle, um, who uh, was a scientist, and they went to see, uh, see King Louis the Fifteenth. Um, in the, the late 1760s. And this was precisely the time when Franklin was um, facing kind of failed effort after failed effort in his attempt at negotiations in England. Hmm. And so uh, I'm interested, in, and he was, uh, when he was introduced to King Louis the Fifteenth, he was introduced as the, um, the world's preeminent scientist. Hmm. So um, I have a sense that he was using his scientific reputation I call it Franklin chic in my book, and I probably will in the new book call it Franklin chic as well, because like it. Franklin is a, is a scientist, and he's using that to mm-hmm. help him um, um, meet people, uh, negotiate with people um, in France, and those uh, those are central to the success of the American colonies with France. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as a diplomat, John Adams was knowledgeable about the law, um, but he was unwilling to accept French culture in the way that it presented itself to him. Whereas Franklin, being, I think, being a cultural relativist, Franklin understood that you need to meet people where they are. Mm. Um, and he, of course, had all of this prior reputation as a scientist. So that's what I'm exploring. I'm exploring the extent to which um, his reputation as a scientist merged with um, his political life and, um, and you know prompted success.
0: That sounds fantastic. Um, are you, dare I ask, planning to use any library company collections? I imagine
1: I will. I imagine I will. The um, the thing that changed my first book, um, and this is a, has to do with the library company collections, I'm going to talk about my first book. Um, in in doing my research, I was here as a scholar on a grant. In doing my research, I discovered the pamphlet war over the annexation of Canada. This is mm-hmm. a pamphlet war that occurred after the Um, as the French and Indian War was going to treaty. Um, And um, it was extremely uh, virulent. And um, we had, uh, um, you have here at the library company, just uh, probably, I read probably 30 different pamphlets related to this. And I realized I really should be talking about economics in my book. For the new book, I I, um, will likely be exploring the scientific imprints that are here um, so that I can examine the extent to which Franklin uh, may have put some of this material, may have combined some of the material, and made it available to people here um, in Philadelphia hmm. as he was uh, sending books over. So I, I need to comb the collection for, um, the, for signs of the books that Franklin was interested in having uh, you know, the library company acquire while he was abroad.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds terrific, and I hope that as soon as you publish it, Um, we can entice you to come back to the library company to tell us all about it.
1: I'd be happy to.
0: And in the meantime, happy writing, and thank you for talking in the library with me.
1: Thanks very much, Will. Thanks for having me.
0: In the next episode, I'll be joined by Dr. Walter Greeson, Associate Professor at Monmouth University and the creator of the Wakanda Syllabus. Walter is currently leading our second spring seminar, Designing Afrofuturism, Imagining Black Futures Through Art, History, and Literature. Until next time.